What is taste? There is no such thing as good taste. Everybody has an appreciation for beauty. It's universal. There is this very basic instinct to make the object of everyday more beautiful. Creativity can be a bit messy, and companies want the ultimate efficiency in highly creative business. If, if the art prevails, it becomes a museum and it probably goes out of business. If the commerce side prevails, it's a race to the bottom. Aesthetic value equals financial value. Hey you, welcome to the Art and Happiness Project, the podcast about the transformative powers of art. I'm Agathe Westad, and in this show I speak with artists from all categories, painters, musicians, actors, dancers, but also business leaders and academics. We tell moving and inspiring stories of how art and creativity help us find meaning, improve our relationships and increase our well-being, whoever we are and wherever we're from. I hope that you'll love it, and if you do, tell your friends. Today I spoke with Columbia Business School Professor Pauline Brown about a little bit of a different topic, which is that of taste. Taste is the aesthetic translation of our life experience. It's a, it's a fascinating topic because it shows up in everything we do, whether we want it or not, and we can leverage it for ours and our community's well-being. Pauline is the former chairman of LVMH in North America and the managing director at global PE firm Carlyle Group. In 2016, she transitioned from leading corporation to start advising them on how to build better brands, culture and leadership through developing what she calls aesthetic intelligence. Her book on aesthetic intelligence, aka Taste, is based on a course she developed and taught at Harvard Business School. So we talked about how individual taste is shaped through our experience, how aesthetic identity can be trained and used to improve our lives. We also talked about promoting creativity in business and the role that aesthetics play in building better leadership and happier employees. I hope that you'll like it and that it'll make you think about where your own taste and aesthetic preferences come from, how they were built and how you can use them for good. Let's go. Hi, Pauline. <laughs> Thank Hi, you. it's great to see you. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Welcome to the Art and Happiness Project. Thank you for having me. Uh, two of my favorite topics to talk about. Um, so I did my research and whilst I was doing this, I came across the fact that you like to watch a YouTube video of how jelly beans are made when you need to relax. <laughs> Tell me more. Uh, so funny. It must be my version of ASMR. I, um, I find uh, sort of silly little things that are very intricate. I mean, it's an art, right? Um, much like, I don't know if you've ever watched pasta being made, but even how it goes so simple, it's water, it's flour, you know, not much else. And the fact that you could make an unlimited number of shapes that they can all sort of go through different, you know, uh, almost like Play-Doh reminds me of my childhood. And with the jelly beans, I just love the colors. I mean, the layers and yeah. layers of color. It's not just this sort of flat blue, green, red, yellow. It has a sort of glisten because there's so many layers of that, of that sugary dye, I guess that color dye that goes on top of it. I'm going to go straight on this after after this recording. <laughs> Sounds fabulous. Um, let's start. I want to talk about first, maybe the, just the power of art and beauty. Mm -hmm. um, this being very much your field and, and talking about you, where, where does your own sense of aesthetics and beauty come from? Can you pinpoint the elements from your past or your childhood that kind of built your taste? Well, the first thing I'd say is I think everybody has uh, an appreciation for beauty. It's universal. Um, whether it's beauty in the form of human figures and faces, beauty in the form of art, which way predates any civilized society, 
uh, beauty in spaces that make us feel a certain way, whether it's energizing or it's soothing. So this uh, embrace of beauty is not at all distinct to me. And the idea of aesthetic intelligence was never that uh, I had or, or that other people I had worked with in some very uh, illustrious companies had this higher appreciation and capability around beauty. It was that we had actually figured out how to commercialize on it. And I think because we lived and worked in a world that was so dependent on being able to deliver on great, beautiful concepts, it forced us to be more attuned to what we considered beautiful or not beautiful. So your question is less to me about why... Do I have any sort of superior grasp of beauty, which I do not? But what is what has shaped my particular form of aesthetic intelligence? Where did that particular type of taste come from? And uh, and I always say with everybody, you know, taste is a complicated it's a complicated matter. It, it is uh, forced and shaped and reshaped and evolved over long stretches of time with a lot of different influences. Some of those influences are people we knew and admired. Some of those influences are the time and the place that we came of age. In my case, I came of age in New York in the 70s and 80s. And uh, there was a very particular style and mood and attitude of New Yorkers. What a time to be alive in New York. You know, it was a scary time too. I mean, I lived in the city in the era of Son of Sam and when New York City was on the verge of bankruptcy and when crime, you know, people get all upset today or crime is getting bad. Crime is nothing compared to what it was 30 to 40 years ago. However, uh, what I love about that era in New York is there was a lot of experimentation. And my concern for the city today, which, which may actually take care of itself over time is it's become so expensive and so money driven that, you know, you, you, you can't afford to take risks and you have um, almost more of a sensibility that I would associate with suburbs sort of infiltrating what's now modern Manhattan and the artistry that was built on people who had a much kind of more raw state of, of uh, expression has moved to places like Detroit or Savannah, Georgia. So um, I am a bit nostalgic, notwithstanding the crime for that earlier era in New York. But I would also say in my particular case that I came from a household that was very uh, old world European. I'm a first generation American. Um, my All four of my grandparents were refugees from the Nazis in the 1930s. My um, paternal side ended up coming to New York as refugees, my maternal side fled Frankfurt for uh, for Barcelona and ultimately Cape Town, where my mother was raised. So the reason I bring that up is even though my friends in the community were all fellow New Yorkers and we were largely, you know, Jewish American, the culture of my home was quite different than the culture of my American counterparts. And to this day. I find left to my own devices that I'm still very drawn to elements of old world, you know, almost a sort of colonial French British aesthetic melded with the kind of loudness and boldness of 1980s New York. I love that. And, and it's also, I'm thinking about um, 
a quote from Sophie Tabor Arp, uh, who was German and also uh, uh, emigrated during the war. And she was, she was a, this wonderful artist and artisan. She made anything from dance costumes to beaded bags to weavings and, and lace. And then as she went on to, uh, to make beautiful paintings and drawings that got the label of fine art, she, when asked why she was doing all this at a time of war, when the preoccupation seemingly would have been very, very different than beautifying stuff, what she said is that there is this very basic instinct and primal instinct in most people, and it's been the case forever, to make the objects of every day that surrounds them more beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that endures even so, and maybe more so in time of crisis, whether we're talking about conflicts, war, or even recently with the pandemic, if you think about people just making their home nice. Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost a, it's almost a compulsion. So as I say this, what's your, your take? If you think about the Maslow pyramid of needs, right? Which has physical needs at the very bottom and then transcendence at the top. Where, where do you see that aesthetics and beauty fit in there? So I think of that as close to the bottom of that pyramid and luxury, which is the other half of the industry that I was in. That's at the top. So I don't need fine champagne if I lost my job, <laughs> no matter how much I want to maybe commiserate and numb my pain. Uh, so luxury to me, you know, gets uh, relegated to um, a much more precious space, but the need for beauty, oh my God, I think that, you know, when we're in times of crisis and our life has been replete of beautiful sensations the human need to express or to, to embrace more of it is that much more pronounced. Now, what is interesting to me is not whether this is a universal need and whether this gets amplified in tough times, I think it does, but it's more how the expressions of beauty and the tastes change coming out the other side. So for example, in distressing times, often, you know, we're drawn to things that soothe us. In um, times of stagnancy, we're drawn to things that energize us. You know, it, because COVID has been marked by isolation, I think the things that draw us are things that bring us together, that are communal in spirit and nature. Um, I also think things that draw us are things that are highly sensorial because sitting in your living room, I don't care how many plants you surround yourself with, you're still in a very uh, sort of monotonous uh, setting. We are staring at our screens, which is not a multisensory experience. It is uh, largely visual, a little bit of audio. So the need to be in nature, the need to be enjoying good food, the need to, uh, to explore in a way that was so prohibitive not that long ago, I think that that is coming back with a vengeance. And I think it'll be a very creative era that we're stepping into in a way that we haven't seen in a long time as, as, as a modern civilization. In one way, what you're saying is that there's no separatedness of, of art and the rest of life. And, and to your earlier point about pasta and jelly beans, art and, and beauty and design are to be found everywhere. They're somewhat inescapable. It's in everything we touch and it's everything we buy, that we eat, that we wear. Um, and, and people often say, I don't know anything about art or I'm not creative. But I, I, it is at least my opinion that they are and they do. And it's it's about breaking that separatedness between what we see as quote-unquote high art, mm -hmm. aka the stuff that's being in the museum or that's being showcased as such, and the things that are 
uh, and everything else that we look on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's all part of a continuous spectrum. And I think that's something that's really interesting and important to to enhance. Yes, yes I, uh, I think um, uh, snobbery is a very destructive force. And when we start to think of qualifying art according to how much price it would get in some artificial marketplace, that's when we lose what art is really about. And I'm not saying that there aren't exquisite pieces that should command a lot of money. Uh, I'm saying that there's a lot of exquisiteness out there that commands almost no money. And the sign of a real aesthet is someone who can see the difference and not necessarily look for the dollar sign to validate uh, their reaction or lack of reaction. So you're bringing a lot of those ideas to to business. And I think that's a very, very interesting concept because once again, this is maybe a place where um, that people don't always associate to to art and beauty and also well-being. And I, I'm going to quote you to you here. So be ready. I don't know how often you get to do this. Um, but you say, <laughs> we live in a world where people don't need more stuff, but there's something that we all need and that's to feel alive, to get inspired, to discover new ways to express who we are. And that's one of the very few things left that doesn't rely on technology. And so that mm -hmm. thing that you're talking about is what you call aesthetic intelligence and what you as I understand, initially taught at Harvard Business School and that became your book and that became your course. Um, can you first give your definition of taste? What What is taste? Because I, that's what aesthetic intelligence is, right? So exactly. That's a, a sort of Cliff Notes version of what it is and it's uh, what that we all appreciate and that we can all recognize that everyone has it. Some people have more developed taste than others. Some people have natural gifts in some areas. Uh, but there is nobody who's born without taste. So taste sits in the body. It is synthesized and interpreted and expressed through the brain, but it starts with the senses. And the reason I called it aesthetic intelligence instead of design thinking or simply beauty is I think the concept of aesthetics is much more profound. Um, and I'm a wordsmith, so I pick my words pretty carefully. Aesthetics comes from a Greek word, aesthetikos. And um, aesthetikos literally means perception of the senses. So uh, it's related, for example, to if you think of a common word that we all use, and probably not too favorably, but like an anesthesiologist. An anesthesiologist's job is to numb your pain before you go into surgery right. so it won't hurt. And as that... Uh, is there to bring out your feelings so that you can feel and experience pleasure. So uh, going back to this idea of what is taste. So people often ask me, um, can you actually teach it or isn't it just something people are born with? And I think I just answered that by saying we're all born with a lot more than we exercise. So everyone can do a lot better if they put their mind to it. Can anybody be an uh, Olympic athlete? Of course not. Um, there's a lot of different variables that go into being the best in the field. But anyone can be in better health and better uh, fitness level tomorrow than they are today if they put the right disciplines in place. The second question people ask me is, is there such a thing as good taste? Isn't it so individualized that what's good to one person is maybe objectionable to someone else? And who's to say what's really in good taste and what's in bad taste? And I always answer that question by saying, first of all, no, there is no such thing as good taste. There are basically as many taste types as there are people. 
The second point is why, why does, why do I like folk music and someone else likes, you know, heavy metal or whatever? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, believe it or not, some of it is genetic, although that's probably the smallest variable. Um, you know, the, the classic example is there's actually a genetic marker for people who have a distaste for cilantro, right? For yeah. the herb cilantro. Um, so there are certain things that are just in our chemistry. Again, that's a small fraction. There are certain things that are in our upbringing. You asked me before what shaped my taste. Well, I came from New York, but I came from a very multicultural European background. Um, you know, there were all sorts of influences. I was, you know, raised in the latter part of the 20th century, not in the latter part of the 19th century. I'm sure my taste would be very different a hundred years earlier. So there's the time, there's the place. And then there's this sort of social forces. You know, you think about the people in your life who you met along the way who really opened your eyes. Um, and then the last point I'll make is, um, and the scientists have actually shown this, there's a whole new field called neuroaesthetics where they study how we perceive beauty and how it changes, that exposure gives us more appreciation. So you'll notice today, for example, that people are eating um, much more ethnic foods than they were 20 years ago, much more uh, spicy foods than they were 20 years ago. And some of the reason for that is as we become more and more of a global world and we have access to different flavors and ideas and cultures, it becomes more palatable to us too. And when we lived in a time where we only knew our neighbors, anything that was um, uh, in great contrast to what was our standard was a bit distressing. So this is, it's a complex um, phenomena, but it's real and it's powerful. And so how do you teach it and why, specifically as it applies to businesses? How, yep. how do you cultivate your own taste? And for me, it's not taste as I listen, I mean, it is taste, but as I listen to you speak, it's also a sense of your own aesthetic identity. So yes. it's how do you um, express yourself through taste and through the five senses? Mm -hmm. Well, the first reason of um, why do I even bother to teach it and teach it to business people is uh, when I started teaching at Harvard, I made the case that aesthetics, aesthetic value equals financial value because it breeds loyalty, recognition, and awareness uh, because it's the cornerstone of viral marketing. I mean, there's all these reasons that the economics support the input, Right. And I realized that just teaching it theoretically was not doing business people a service because this isn't a theory, it's a practice. And that it frustrated me time and again to see the senior most people in big companies relegate anything that was in this sort of quasi aesthetic realm, whether it was the brand identity or customer experience to an art department or to an agency. And I felt like it, the CEO would never take the supply chain and say, oh, that's just going to fall in that hinterland department. The CEO feels ownership, even if his operations team is doing the execution, the CEO felt that that would be a core strategy. And why does that same CEO not feel the same ownership over the aesthetic expression? And I think part of the reason is that he or she, and it's usually a he sitting in that C-suite, didn't have a fully developed a, uh, aesthetic sensibility of their own and as a result, didn't value it. And so I kind of came to the conclusion that if you're going to realize it's important and that it's a discipline and that it takes work, that the first step 
was to cultivate it in yourself and to build an organization that valued it just as you need to at your senior most level and to find all sorts of outlets, not just the obvious ones like a you know brand book or a store design, but maybe the less obvious ones like office design. How does that affect right. the way your employees feel? Uh, all sorts of elements of culture and of uh, representation. And so in the absence of going to that next step, I didn't feel that the course was really having impact. So when I wrote the book, I decided I would dedicate half of it to the development process and half of it to the business case. So to your question, how do you develop it? Taste comes down to four different processes. And the first was what I called attunement, which is if you really want to know what you like or what you don't like, the first step is to be highly aware of all the stimuli. And if in, and, and, and it forces you, so for example, if you're in a restaurant and the waiter puts a plate down, to really not just focus on, you know, is it a piece of steak in the middle, but how did all the different ingredients come together? How is the fact that the fork or the knife have a certain weight to them? That How is that enhancing or maybe undermining the dining experience? What music is playing and how is that ex- creating either for the better or for the worse this experience? So the more attuned or what I call aesthetic sensitivity and we go through life, we block a lot of our senses because we're trying to get through the day, we're trying to be efficient. But if we don't unblock it, we'll never be able to get to step two. Step two is what I call interpretation, which is now I'm going to start to sort of uh, synthesize what do I like? What don't I like? What parts of the experience were fleeting? Which ones resonated with me and sort of o- overshadowed the rest? And this sort of mental cognition of the sensations is the second step. The third step is uh, curation. So curation would be, an example of curation would be, let's stay with the uh, culinary, because it's so universal. Uh, If I were having a dinner party this weekend and I wanted to make a meal, the worst thing I could do is think of the 10 ingredients or flavors that I like best and throw them all in a pot, right? Just because I like something individually doesn't mean it works well in combination. So curation is thinking about the combination and the holistic effect. So often, if you speak to an architect, for example, they don't start with all the different design elements they want to ultimately end up with, but they start with a theme or they start with what what I call a narration, and then they work around it. So it's sort of the structure and the editorial command, because at the end of the day, most of the best experiences are as much about what you don't include as what you do. And then the last piece, which is really very much for the business sphere, is what I call articulation. So if you think of a great business leader who is also an aesthetic genius, like a Steve Jobs, his power was his ability not just to know what he liked and didn't like in the form of you know, an aesthetic representation of a brand or a, or, or, or a technological product, but that he could command thousands of people working in his service, whether they shared his tastes or not, to execute on it. And he did that because he was able to articulate so precisely what it is he wanted to see happen. And most executives, including in my business school classes, they don't, they, they may have learned how to think and how to communicate analytically, but they don't, uh, they don't communicate very well descriptively. They tend to give me all the facts. They tend to give me a uh, good word selection, but they, they don't 
often find the words that I that if I were just reading the text could feel exactly what they felt during that experience. And that's the power of great articulation if you're working with a team or a large organization. It makes me think of um, actually Walt Disney, as you uh, as you mentioned this, because I, I recently read that at one point, Walt Disney, who was a creative mm -hmm. for sure, yes. but also was a, a businessman, if, 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 if there ever was any, um, he was the single largest employee of artists in the world for at, at a moment in time, he had about 600 artists on his payroll. Um, I find that really interesting because it, it also once again break the the idea that uh, that art and creativity sometimes is very separate to business. So granted that Walt, the Walt Disney Enterprise was something that was an aesthetic experience to begin with. But I think in all businesses today, if you think about tech, there is a huge space for artistic creation, whether that's UX and UI design, whether that's product design, uh, whether that's content making, marketing, uh, and it's it's often again seen as something very separate from the artistic world, and it's not. Uh, and it's all part of the idea of of bringing beauty and delight to the ultimate consumer, mm -hmm. whatever it is that you're consuming as part of the business. Mm -hmm. it's, and it's a point of view. And Walt Disney had a very particular and unusual point of view of what family fun could look like. You know, before his time, every amusement park was just chasing Coney Island uh, in its form of right. amusement. And he kind of reinvented, he created, I think it was the first example of a truly immersive experience. Um, and what's interesting also about the Walt Disney example is, you know, when he started Imagineering, which became essentially the R&D arm for the parks, it was just a bunch of mostly guys who were coming from different disciplines who were sort of playing in a sandbox. And it's a messy process. You know, oftentimes in big companies, there's this tension because creativity can be a bit messy and companies want the ultimate efficiency in everything they do. Yeah, and process, which is very present. And uh, so I think it took someone in a very empowered role, which was Walt, in combination with his brother, who was his business partner, who could, you know, also make sure that the trains were running on time to actually bring that to life. And more often than not, in highly creative businesses, I find that the, the best ones and the ones that seem to stand the test of time have two empowered people who have a, you know, a mutual respect and, uh, and an affection and can work well together, whether they're family members or, you know, husband, wife team, whatever it is, because if one side, if, if the art prevails, it becomes a museum and it probably goes out of business. If, if the commerce side prevails, which is usually what I see with big companies, then it, uh, it's a race to the bottom bottom. The, uh, it's very hard to sustain your competitive edge if all you're doing is going a bit faster, a bit bigger, a bit cheap, cheaper. Yeah, and I mean, there's 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 also more than one way to bring art and creativity to the workplace. I think you've touched kind of on both of them, but the the, the two main ones in my mind are first bringing putting creativity and beauty straight into the consumer product, mm -hmm. which is a, a big part of of, of what you teach. And the other one um, is also that is is also is bringing creativity in the workplace, mm -hmm. and that's interesting because I think there's a value, there's a commercial and an economic business value mm -hmm. to doing that, as you just mentioned. But there's also going into our, our topic of well-being and happiness. There is something quintessentially 
beneficial and pleasing in making people aware of their own creative senses, especially for those people who don't identify themselves as such. Yes. Uh, and, and that goes back to my point that this is universal. Uh, whether people are uh, part of the creation process or not, they're certainly part of the experiential process. Uh, that a lot of companies have made the, I think, the miscalculation of divorcing what they do in the front of the house, whether it's in the store or it's in the theater, versus what they do in the back of the house, uh, that they've forgotten that there are humans on both sides of the equation. And that in order for those humans to really be a part of your storytelling, you have to treat them with dignity and with care as well. Um, there's all sorts of research that shows, you know, not only um, in, you know, thoughtfully designed work environments, are people more productive? Are people less prone to get sick? Are people feeling more loyal and, uh, and more um, energized by their work? Um, but that they're also transmitting something to your end customer that is uh, a different spirit than when they're demoralized. And that too is, is a very important advantage to hold on to. It's very hard to win back that affection if you've lost it. So, so I don't, I believe this idea of aesthetic and aesthetic strategies should find its way into all areas of a business and not in the way that I would necessarily require a company to come up with a budget for many of these decisions. I think that it's more about the things that you're already doing and doing them with the human on the other end, doing them in ways that feel good. You're already going to put paint on the wall every so often. Why choose a color that, you know, is either dreary or makes people look sallow, you know, why not be mindful of what the mood state that you're trying to create is and the little touch points that you're already working with and how they can be enhanced. And when you think about people, I mean, the general crisis that we're seeing so much of right now of people burning out at work and being fundamentally unhappy with what they do and, and losing a sense of purpose and of meaning in their jobs. This doesn't feel like a non-essential, like does it, does, it doesn't feel superfluous, mm -hmm. right? When you say this to me, I don't think, oh, well, what does the color on the wall matter? It, it, be, it takes a whole different meaning. Um, and so in, in this way, I think AI labs and your work taps into people's own sense of creativity and it, 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 it grows it. Mm -hmm. Once you reveal someone's creative potential to themselves, how do you think it, it changes their, their work and, and beyond that, their lives? Mm -hmm. You know, I struggle when I'm sitting in boardrooms and listening to CEOs and they talk about meaning and purpose and it's all very conceptual. You know, it almost becomes like some distant religion that they talk about. So to me, it's, it's so much more profound than this sort of new uh, era of, you know, social responsibility. It's, it's you know, start, start from home. I mean, I know many philanthropists who've done well in their careers, and now they want to get their names on buildings, or they want to be part of some society that, you know, is a patron to the arts. Or, and then you look at how they treat their own staff. It's unforgivable. And I think we've just we've 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 been through a couple of decades of really heartless leadership, and uh, and I think that it's time to stop. So that's as much my my drive for what I talk about as is this idea that I'd just like to see more beauty in the world around me. Yeah, 
it's just that in in your in your approach beauty and uh and aesthetics participate to that yeah i mean i do write a um they they should and they must in the long term i write a section in the book about uh aesthetics and ethics there are plenty of examples of companies that have used aesthetics for manipulation and have done quite well for periods of time in the long term if uh an aesthetic strategy isn't built on genuine values and uh aren't uh championed by people who uh you know will fight go down on that sword they will it, it will not be effective so the case that i use in the book which is one of many i could have talked about is is jewel the e-cigarette company which was a brilliant right. brilliant uh, aesthetic creation in terms of its ability to reinvent a category that really had been around in some form since the 1980s e-cigarettes are not new smokeless cigarettes were started by rest uh, by reynolds decades earlier but uh, what jewel was able to crack is how do we make it fun modern even connote that this might be a healthy alternative um and in so they t- they 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 took that thread so far that they even went so they even said this is kid friendly in 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 not in so many words and then they got found out you know and and when they were found out now it's still a big company it hasn't gone away but it is valued today at about uh 5% of the valuation that it hit at its peak there is very clear health damages produced by this company but if you think yeah think in general about the world of marketing and and luxury it's often very linked to excess of consumerism mm-hmm. right of 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 a compensation mm-hmm. in some way which definitely to me doesn't go in the sense of well-being and people feeling connected and p- purposeful and so you on the other hand talk about feeling alive and getting inspired and expressing yourself and you are at the same time also saying that those things have business value do you think it's a it's a stretch to say that that developing people's taste and visual language is also helping them with their their own sense of identity and and i'd go even as far as saying self esteem mm-hmm. absolutely i mean i would tell somebody who comes into my course who is only interested in doing it for business value they're probably not the right student for this then they should just take a graphic design class um because one of the imperatives of getting this ai concept right is breaking down the wall between who you are in your life and who you are at work and the more integrated you are between the two and the more in touch you are between your identity whatever your bio is saying then the more of yourself you can bring into your workforce and that's a huge part of your value I see especially in business but also in science in engineering in all sorts of fields people leave so much of themselves behind because we were trained that to be professional is to be impersonal and uh you know to be highly aesthetic is to be highly accessible so uh do I think that number one that makes for a better life uh for sure I do because I think it's very stressful to have sort of two different identities your professional identity which may have even been invented by somebody else and a personal identity that you kind of keep in a closet uh maybe you show your friends but you're never going to show your coworkers i think that's a very stressful existence um and number 2 i think um the more free people are it, to in a thoughtful way to express who they are and what they believe uh i think the more impact they can have Um and if you're in an environment where expressing yourself is rejected 
because maybe your point of view clashes with the corporate point of view, I would say you're probably in the wrong place. You can't fight the system, but you got to find a system that embraces who you are, whether or not it shares the exact principles. Uh, I'm sure there are many people who worked for the likes of Steve Jobs or Walt Disney who didn't share either of their aesthetic ideals. You know, maybe somebody worked at Apple and they're really a maximalist at home, or maybe someone worked for Walt Disney and they are Victorian in their art collection or whatever contrast you might come up with. But they embraced and they found a way to contribute within the aesthetic value system that they were a part of. And that's important too. Thanks, Pauline. I have a few uh, ending questions for you. So short questions, short answers. Um, if you were an artist, what would you be? Oh, yeah, I'd probably be like a Dorothy Parker. <laughs> I would, uh, I would be an artist, uh, whose work lives in words and humor and somebody who's a bit of a sort of society observer more than a, I wouldn't be a fiction writer. That's not my milieu. You've called yourself a wordsmith earlier, so that makes total sense. <laughs> <laughs> What is the most beautiful object you've ever seen? Ah, mm. oh, great question. I found like the Fabergé eggs were mm, breathtaking. Yes. <laughs> I mean, just the intricacy and the fact I love the shape of an egg. I eat eggs most day of the week. <laughs> and the idea that you could take it and make something that had no utility, right? And just the intricacy, when I see things like these really fine silk weaves that I say, I could, I could work 40 years and I could never replicate that skill. And the colors in the case of the Fabergé eggs, oh, yeah. it's just beautiful. Yeah, I know. Do you ever dance on your own when no one's watching? No, but my daughter does all the time. I think it's a TikTok uh, generation thing. Well, except that with TikTok, everyone is watching. That is true. <laughs> Although she, you, you don't know how many clips she throws on the editing floor before we actually see the finished version. Um, I, don't, I don't really dance. I mean, I'll dance if I have friends over. To me, that's not a private activity. Um, private for me would be singing. Actually, oh, not really? Dancing. So you sing. But I think it goes back to the words. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> Lastly, what is art for? for you in one word oh in one word glory mm, thanks Pauline thank you that's all for today guys thank you so much for listening and I really hope you enjoyed the episode if you did don't hesitate to let me know with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and if you're not the review type it's all good there's a lot of other ways to help for example you could tell a friend or two about us it'll help us a lot and who knows it might even help them Thanks for your time and see you soon for a new episode of the Art and Happiness Project. Bye-bye.